Hello and welcome to the sixth episode of the Highlighter Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Icero. This podcast is where we talk about the best articles on race, education, and culture that have been featured in the weekly Highlighter newsletter. This week, there were thought-provoking articles on lynching, homeless students, the newspaper industry, and the weight loss industry. If you'd like to read the articles, you can find the Highlighter newsletter online at j.mp slash thehighlighter104. Now it's time for something really exciting, which is for me to introduce this week's guest. Today, I get to talk with Angelina Garcia, who is an academic data and assessment manager in the Bay Area. We used to work together, and now we don't, which makes me sad, so I'm therefore extremely happy to be able to talk to her right now. Let's get right to it. Well, hello, Angelina. Uh, Welcome, and how are you today? Hi, Mark. I'm doing well. It was really great to talk to you. You know, um, we used to work together, and then now we don't, but, you know, that makes me totally sad, but we get to talk on this podcast now. I'm still processing it, so I'm excited to talk. Yeah, but it's exciting, you know, what you're continuing to do. But first, before we get into that, I wanted to thank you uh, very kindly for being a loyal subscriber to The Highlighter. It's We've joked that you're almost like the managing editor, so I just wanted to ask, <laughs> you know, I wanted to ask, like, why do you, you know, why do you subscribe and why do you read it? I think mostly because I like your your choices of articles. Um, I also don't feel pressure to, like, read all of them, and I like that kind of, like, close but a little bit distant interaction of, like, okay, cool, this is, like, Mark's curation of articles this week. Let me just skim the title. Okay, cool, I'm going to read that one. That piques my interest. And then also, if I want to say something back to you about my thoughts, like, you're totally open to it, so I kind of like that interaction. Um, so I like the, like, the fluidity and also the option, but also, like, not a lot of pressure. So I think that's mostly why I like the highlighter. Yeah, I like that because I used to, I mean, the whole reason that I started it in the first place was before I would endlessly send articles to friends, even when they didn't want to read them. And I would say, read it, read it. And it it felt sort of annoying. And so this time, you know, now everybody can just read it or not and sort of do it at their own pace. But one of the things that I've uh, enjoyed that you do is that sometimes you send me a little message and even a quote. It's like you, you like to collect quotes sometimes. Um, is this like just your reading style, or, or, or where did you get that from? Oh, absolutely my reading style. I think even as a young reader in like high school, when I started to like really pay attention to what I was reading, um, I would just come off with these little tidbits and like remember books or like articles through these random quotes. It's kind of like how you meet someone, and if you remember the context of how you met them, whether it's like at the gym or where they work, um, it helps me remember who they are. And I think the same thing goes for reading. It helps me remember what I read, what it was about. And it also makes me feel connected to, like, say, hey, this is what I got from it. And if I had to choose, like, one or two quotes, this is how I would synthesize it or piqued my interest the most. Yeah, it's weird. Like, sometimes I go through this time where I'm actually collecting quotes and then trying to sort of save them for later. The problem is that I never actually organize them um, all that well. And so they sort of get remembered, but then sometimes they get lost. But uh, maybe we can talk about your system because I just thought it was pretty intriguing because there's a difference between, there's a difference between sort of knowing an article and then sort of really getting out like a key quote or a key 
uh, statistic. Maybe it's because you like are into data, and you know, at least the the stereotype is you know all about organization and and specificity and precision. I did want to talk about that because you know you are um, an academic data and assessment manager. And obviously, you know, being in data now is is a thing that's really um, not just important, but also I feel like it's trending in various industries. And so I wanted to ask you why you chose education. You know, um, you know, obviously, I think it's a great choice. But for the people who may not be educators out there, why do you choose schooling and education? I think as a first-generation graduate, it's always on my mind about, like, disparities and disadvantages that folks have, privileges and, and different experiences people had in K-12 and also post-secondary education. And when I got my undergrad degree, I was like, okay, well, where do I go? I need to get a job. And I was able to find a job at a charter school, and I kind of just fell in love with this datatized, I don't know, uh, systematized part of schooling. You know, I, I think teachers are wonderful. Curriculum is great. Instruction is really meaningful and needed in school. But I was lucky enough to, like, work on a teach with a teacher on special assignment whose whole job was, like, managing the database. And I was like, okay, cool. And we were just really, like, one of the best teams ever. And we would just go and do professional development with teachers and help them understand why we did um, certain assessments, why we use certain systems, the importance to not only us as a school and the importance of like being in compliance, but also try to bring it back into like the importance of for you as a teacher. I hope you don't think we're giving this assessment just because we've been told to and that's it. And I found a lot of like life breathing in my work during those conversations, like helping teachers understand that this is actually a tool that they can use to better their craft um, made me really feel purposeful, I guess. And so I kind of grew into that over time and kind of built my own skills around different systems and how to support teachers. And I found myself really liking it. And so when I asked myself, I think I asked myself every few years, like, where am I? Who am I? What am I doing? Um, and I asked myself the bigger important question is, like, are you, are you happy and are you passionate about the work? And luckily, I've been able to say for the last six years of doing data and assessment in, in academia or in K-12 education at the very least, um, I love what I do. And I like the conversations that I get to have with educators, school leaders, policymakers, because I feel like they're all intertwined, and I kind of act as this middleman interpreter for folks around why data is important in schools. And if I'm lucky enough to, like, build capacity for teachers, then I think it's a good day. Well, yeah, I wanted to ask you more about that, too, because, you know, there, I mean, I notice also a backlash sometimes, you know, for example, there's Common Core, and then there's the backlash, and so therefore there's data, and then there's the backlash. What do you say to people who say things like, oh, data is dehumanizing um, public education or or young people? My first question is, like, why do you think that? <laughs> and I like to hear the story behind why people feel the way they feel, because I could go off and really quickly to my response to that, kind of generically, that I don't believe it's dehumanizing, and I think it's a, it's a way for educators to get on the bandwagon of for-profit industries ways of anticipating trends and reaching the needs of users and things like that. We as a nonprofit industry can do a lot more and take a lot more learning from for-profit industries that have figured out ways to anticipate and pivot a lot quicker because they're motivated by money, right? Like, I don't want to lose all this money, so I better learn how to interpret this data so that I can make better and stronger decisions. And I think now over the last 10-ish years, education has caught on to that, like, oh my gosh, we have so much data. 
let's figure out what to do with it. And we're all still figuring it out. Um, and so first I ask why they feel that way so I can maybe tailor my response to their emotional experience behind the question or the statement. And then second, I say exactly what I feel and what I mean, which is I think it's important. I don't think it dehumanizes. I think at its richest, purest space, data-driven instruction and data-driven decision-making in education can be incredibly powerful. It allows us to pivot faster. It allows us to serve more students. Um, and it allows us to see students beyond just one teacher's experience of that student. And so one of the things I love about my job is bringing to the forefront um, teasing out the data based on subgroups, which I don't think happens enough. So I think it's important to see how special education students perform compared to general ed. I think it's important to see how uh, students who are considered low income perform versus their higher income counterparts. And I think that race is always an issue that needs to be teased apart because as educators, we need to be held accountable. I think there's a lot of movement to make it feel like an equitable practice that that doesn't feel demeaning to teachers, like, oh, you don't know how to do this. I think that's where a lot of training can help. But at its purest state, and I believe the intent behind it, I think assessment is, is good. And I think that there's always going to be problems with standardized assessment. And I'm not a person who goes around saying I love the SAT and I love Smarter Balanced. But I am a person who says if we have to use this data or we have to at least give it why don't we make meaning of it? Why don't we use this to our advantage and support our students? Because it's something that does offer some light onto our students, regardless if we respect it or not. And so that's yeah, kind of like that's kind of my basic response. That's a great response. I totally agree. Especially, you know, we know that teachers are very, very busy and they're working extremely hard. And I just feel like sometimes data, especially when done well, and you've always worked with teachers, when done well, it actually uh, humanizes. It actually does the opposite, where it sort of validates what the teachers are doing, as well as allows teachers to pinpoint or to put an investment in a specific subgroup or to sort of work on their lessons in a different way, uh, rather than to feel totally overwhelmed. It's it's really how you use it. Um, and that's something that I just, you know, in, in your work, you know, I really felt um, when, you know, when we were working together. So thank you for that. Um, I wanted to ask you, do you want to chat about an article um, today? Sure. So in last week's, or just a few days ago, submission, I caught to, I was really interested in the uh, New York Times versus Washington Post article just because it's fascinating, I think, as we continue to go into, like, digitized everything. Like, oh, where is, where do paper print live? Like, I don't know. So I read that one. And then I, later on in the week, I read, the article about homeless students. And so I definitely have thoughts about the homeless students article, if you want to talk about that one. Yeah, let's talk about it. I mean, first of all, I got this from a loyal subscriber, Ben, and he uh, lives in the Pacific Northwest, and he sort of sent it to me. And it's it's quite an honor, I think, sometimes when people send a submission and then it gets in because, you know, this is only the best articles. And the first thing is, even though I've been in education and also i have a few friends who actually work with homeless youth here in san francisco it wasn't something that i totally knew very much about and so i wanted to get your sort of first impressions um about about the article well i think my first impression was how a seemingly like well-intended rule or regulation that is geared towards like supporting homeless students easily got misconstrued into something that 
seems pretty malicious, actually. Um, and I think that that is the air of a lot of policies, right? They're well intended and they're geared hopefully to serve students and then in actualization, in operation on school sites, it actually can hurt students. And my question throughout the article was like, and who's holding like Seattle City Schools accountable? And like, how do we see that? And I, and I don't think the article really got towards the external accountability for the Seattle City Schools. Um, and that was probably the most disappointing piece of the article around this is a marginalized group across the country that is continually being disserviced. And this is an explicit way where you have student athletes who are homeless playing for four years and not graduating with a high school diploma. And like how devastating that is for particularly as the article meant mostly black students who are being affected by this, this regulation or law. And so I think my first reaction was like, this is really sad, and now what? And who else is doing this? Because Seattle's the only one talked about, but I'm sure it happens other places. Yeah, I'm sure it totally happens other places too. And I agree with you about the the article. I mean, I totally thought it was fascinating. And yet, at the end, I was, you know, even though it was long, I wanted it to explain more about the accountability for the entire system. Um, it seemed like they were trying to sort of blame um, high school football programs and specifically African-American high school football coaches. But my question was more like exactly what's going on here from a systemic, specifically because the tone, and this is what I get nervous about, especially with the general public when it comes to uh, public education. It did seem to be a little bit negative with regard to whether these students are actually homeless. And oh, yeah. Did, so there was that whole part of it. Yeah. Did you feel like it, it seemed like they were sort of blaming the kids and blaming the coaches? And actually, I felt like inside the story, it was almost like, oh, there's really not that many homeless kids out there. They're just sort of trying to, to beat the system. And I sort of got mad about that. Mm -hmm. Immediately, I ran to that. There's a bar chart right in the middle about like, oh, the increase in the homeless youth. And I was like, hold up. Let's talk about this bar graph. Um, are there extenuating circumstances that could also have contributed to this? Like, is there migrants in your community? Um, what does public housing report? If ever you show a, an, an increase in some sort of demographic, the, the question becomes, okay, and what happened outside of this community? Like, in the larger city of Seattle, what's going on? And was there a larger population of homelessness? Was there a decrease in... Uh, jobs like there's a lot of things that contribute to homelessness and I was like this is super uncontextualized data I mean I totally get it that somebody saw this this peak this uh this peak in data and was like whoa 49 one one four years ago and in four years time 129 that's a lot of kids and it's like yeah and what's the context for this bar chart because you can't just look at these things in isolation I just totally loved how you I mean you just totally analyzed it you know and and the thing is we talk about how with fake news, as well as reading of current events, there's this focus mm -hmm. on the actual words and whether young people and adults, whether we can sort of draw conclusions. But you just nailed it in the actual graph. And I think that a lot of people probably reading the article are just going to take that uh, chart at face value rather than asking the questions like you did. Um, and I think the thing is, go ahead. Well, I think that the original question around, like, well, is there really that many homeless youth? Well, the question becomes, did any other, like, I just, I'm looking at this bar graph, Mark, and I'm just so irritated because I think what people are going to read, they're going to read it, of one, say, oh, my gosh, either 
Seattle has an uprising of homelessness or this this bar graph is totally inflated by like these families who have been coached into selecting the I'm homeless box on the application, um, which I don't think necessarily either of them are true. And so in terms of like what we extrapolate from charts and graphs, it, from a data perspective, it just really hurts me because I feel like this is how we digest data in these small isolated chunks that have no contextualization and that also pretty much feed my whole passion in, in my job, which is like, this is one data point. How do we contextualize all of this to make it to make meaning, to make true meaning? Um, and so that I just want to add that piece around my fears when people read things like this. Yeah, I think it's great. And what I also got thinking about is, you know, when usually with disaggregating um, data in education, there there are groups like uh, special education, special populations, and then there's also say by race and by socioeconomic. And um, then there are some groups that may be less sort of official or marginalized. And I'm wondering to what degree uh, do different districts, charter organizations and, and districts, how much are they looking at homeless students as, as a cohort? Um, do, you, do you know of, of that going on? Is that something that is standard or not? I don't think it's standard at all. I think because of funding, even in the state of California, I think schools are becoming more aware that they should pay attention to homeless youth. But what's unfortunate is that there's no like programmatic backing for it. Like, and then we'll give you money for this program to support them. Or, and these are the best practices around, you know, basically instructing homeless or migrant youth, right? Because the idea too is like, in a micro sense, homeless youth are probably not stable in the nighttime. Like they're just falling asleep wherever they can and finding home, uh, home space wherever they can, which is the same for like migrant youth who have to like travel across the country over three to six months periods. And like, that's an instructionally difficult population. Like, I'm probably not going to see you on a continuing basis, whether I see you a couple of times a week or for just two or three months in a row and then I don't see you again. Like, that's actually really hard for an instructor to, like, handle and and figure out the best way to meet that student. And there's no education that I've heard of that's like, and these are some best practices around reaching youth. Um, and so I get really frustrated because I don't think there is any support. It's just like now we're just starting to label it. We're just starting to count it. And hopefully you guys are doing something about it. Thanks. And so it feels really, I don't know, like traumatic almost to say this is a real population. They have needs. Right now we're just going to ask you to count them. And so I don't. The answer is I don't think that people are even looking at it. And if they are, they're just starting to look at it. And there's for sure not a lot of support that's publicized, I will say. I mean, there's got to be support out there. Um, it's just not codified and packaged in a way that seems really clear, like other strategies for, let's say, English learners or special education students, differentiation for those groups. Um, it's not the same, right. I don't think. Yeah, I mean, and I got a little bit mad also at the article because, you know, there's this, there's this federal law that is attempting to help uh, students who are homeless. And yet sometimes, for example, e e each of these provisions could go either way. So, for example, the one where you don't need a 2.0 GPA, which everybody else would need um, in order to play mm -hmm. on a team, that is supposed to be supporting the student who is homeless. But it seems like maybe it's being detrimental uh, at the same time. And so I think that Absolutely. that was one big thing. I mean, that was one big thing in the article. It was sort of like, let's, 
let's count them, but at the same time, maybe they're trying to rig the system. And by the way, let's help them, but let's not help them. And it just left me very, very frustrated at the end. But my question at the end is sort of, what I mean, what would you do next? I mean, you, you talk about counting. What what would be the next steps to sort of not just um, not only to sort of bring light to this, but also to get teachers and educators more um, thinking that maybe working with homeless students is something that they should be emphasizing and something that they should be thinking about. Well, I think research is important. You know, folks respect when things have been researched and vetted and I think there's just not a lot of literature out there. I think there is. I don't think it's being pushed out as readily as other instructional strategies or educational positions might be given out. And so I think it's the job of over, overseers, right? So if you're in a big district, it's your district. If you're in a charter organization, it's your charter organization that's, I think, really held responsible. I don't, I, of course, I want the federal and state governments to lead the charge and also sometimes that takes too long. And I think that it's really important for people who do know the truth and also know best practices and have programs that have been working or they're trying to figure it out that they be more vocal. And it's also slightly sad because we're asking, you know, a marginalized group of, of students um, to just kind of wait while we figure it out. And so I just, I'm, my charge is really to educators who know and have worked with homeless youth and have something to say about it and also have experiences that mean something, that they go and talk to those district leaders. I mean, boards are real. Uh, board of Education for your local district, they they hold a lot of power. And so I was really disturbed by one of the uh, overseers that was discussed who was like, we don't have time to investigate every single allegation of homelessness not being true or being true. And I was like, okay, well, if you approve a policy in the future, you should probably have ways of accountability like built into that. And that's like my hope for every educational policy. Like, okay, if you want this to happen and then then how do you know it happened? And how do you know it's happening well? And where's there room to fix the policy or add, you know, additional regulations that safeguard children? These are still children. Despite the fact that the article is mostly talking about high school sports, there's a bunch of other ways that these students are being disadvantaged, and I just think that it's the, on the it's the call of the educators who know what they know to speak up and start circulating that type of conversation. Yeah, I totally agree, and it's just so intriguing, and also it just gets me thinking too. I mean, you've been extremely clear about this charge about what needs to happen next, and it just gets me thinking about these two or three um, highlighter subscribers who work for the district here in San Francisco, and and perhaps I'll have I'll try to encourage them to be guests on the show so that they can sort of see what's happening in San Francisco. There's a lot of um, there's there's a, a lot of applause and a lot of appreciation for um, what SFUSD is doing, and I'd love to know because it seems like they're doing some stuff that maybe some other larger districts are not doing nationwide. Um, Absolutely, I to ask if they you... can put it on a. Sorry, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> I just wanted to say, like, if that is the charge and that they're doing things that are well, then let's it's, let's make these things public. We're all in public education, and that's my larger encouragement is, like, make great things more public on the Internet. Let folks Google it and find it and say, oh, my gosh, this is what SFUSD is doing. They found some really great strategy. Let's try it and let's fix it. Let's make it work for our community. Yeah, I totally agree. Well, thank you for for chatting about this article. Is there anything else that you'd like to talk about in the article? 
Um, no, I think I got all my feelings out, actually. Thank you. That's so good. I mean, I wanted to also ask before we close, is there a topic, because you've been with the highlighter since the beginning, so is there a topic that you want to read more about that maybe I should go and look for? Um, actually, I'm, I'm, next, I'm pretty satisfied with the options. I think race, equity, diversity, education, these are things that I want to read about, and you, you tend to be really consistent. And so I also, I think more so I, I want to continue to encourage you seeking articles from various uh, publishers. Like it's really good that I think that you don't post something from one magazine or one, you know, one place over and over and over again. It's nice that you're actively trying to diversify it up. Um, and so I just want to encourage that because I like it. Cool. Thank you. And Angelina, I just want to thank you so much for chatting with me today on the podcast. You know, I would love to have you back on the show soon. And, yeah, just thank you so much, and I hope that you have a really, really great week. Have a great day. All right. Thanks, Mark. Well, that's unfortunately it for this week. I hope you enjoyed listening to Angelina as much as I did. This entire community at The Highlighter is pretty impressive, don't you think? And so I like being able to introduce you all to each other. You're deep thinkers, kind people, and excellent readers, and we all benefit being in community. Thank you for listening to this episode, and I'll be back next Sunday night at 9, 10 p.m. for the Highlighter Podcast number seven.